0: So you excited, Shadi?
1: I'm pretty excited, Demir. This is big. Um, we have a very special guest. Glenn Greenwald yeah. is joining us. Well, and yes,
0: joining us. Yes, technically for our readers, listeners. But yes, joining us soon.
1: <laughs> because we actually talked to him yesterday, and we're just um, doing a little intro, so you know what to expect. We covered a lot, and um, there was a lot we wanted to talk to Glenn about. He is... Uh, probably one of the most well-known, even famous. Controversial. uh, I think maybe the most
0: controversial. Well, uh, certainly for our podcast. But anyway, one of the most controversial. Go on.
1: Yeah, journalists in the U.S., but also more broadly. There were a number of things that we wanted to talk about. We did cover a lot of ground, so we're dividing this into two parts. Part one is available to all of you uh, for free, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Part two will be available for subscribers only. Um, So we would encourage you to consider subscribing and supporting our work. We think part two is really good, too. And just to give you a a little bit of a heads up, in part two, we talk about whether Glenn considers himself a man of the left, wokeness, American exceptionalism, whether the left has certain blind spots about autocrats. And a cool one that we ended with, I just felt like, hey, let me ask Glenn a sort of unusual question, which was whether he would ever consider serving in government. And I brought up the example of a hypothetical fantasy Bernie Sanders administration and I actually wasn't sure what he would say on that. So um, I, I think he'll find that interesting. So uh if you do want to subscribe, you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. In addition to this um additional part with Glenn Greenwald, you'll also have access to other paid content, our weekly Friday essay, and others and other members only bonus podcasts. So um, with that, Demir, a final final word before people here.
0: I just want to say you are a master master marketer, Shadi, and hats off to you. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, first part <laughs> is uh, is 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 real good, but the second part's real juicy too. So hopefully, you'll become subscribers soon. Enjoy.
2: I think people like to see the. Behind the scenes, stumbling before the show begins. Exactly.
0: So. I mean, in a way, our entire show is behind the scenes stumbling.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know the
1: feeling. <laughs> I, Glenn, I just realized that we've been in touch over Twitter for such a long time, like DMs, and just like going back and forth publicly. But um, I don't think I've ever, ever talked to you directly, so it's nice to actually do that for the first time.
2: Yeah, you too. It's always strange when yeah, it's always strange when you know people. So many years, you know, from kind of just the place you go to work and then you realize you've never actually had normal, civilized, direct conversation with them. So.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
0: you know, we, we've done a, a, we've done one with Andrew Sullivan recently and uh, with Megan McArdle. And, and honestly, it's 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 this sort of generation of bloggers that that uh, for me anyway, I mean, it was just, you know, it's 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 sort of synonymous with the rise of Internet writing, you and Andrew and, and Megan. Uh, So, again, it's a a, a real treat to have you on.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys asking me.
1: Yeah, so maybe we'll get started. I don't know exactly when we'll start in. So if you heard someone, um, let me just say that we have a very special guest for this episode. We're really excited about it. Glenn Greenwald is joining us. Um, We have a a lot to talk about. Uh, I mean, Glenn probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but... I'll just say a few a few highlights. As many of you will know, he is the founder of The Intercept. He has a, a relatively recent Substack, which I'd encourage you to check out. And he has a new book out. It's called Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Brazil. And it will include links to the book and to Glenn Substack in the show notes. So maybe, you know, we'll start with the book. I mean, it's a fascinating book, and it's quite personal. That Glenn, you found yourself becoming almost a household name in Brazil in a way. And I think the story of what happened to you has a lot of implications for how we think about democracy more broadly, free speech, and the role that journalists play in a democracy. And you're obviously a controversial figure in American politics to some extent. And I feel like almost every time I go on Twitter, I see people attacking you. But that didn't prepare me for learning about what you've had to go through, being an outspoken critic of the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, the far-right president. It's a whole different level. You you have to live with a full security team. You don't go out except with armed an armed guard. One of your close friends was assassinated, so on and so forth. Um, so maybe I just wanted to start with the figure of Bolsonaro, who figures— very prominently in the book, and you make a really interesting point that I hadn't quite thought of before in the early pages. You talk about how when we as Americans talked about Bolsonaro as the Brazilian Trump or the Trump of the tropics, that was actually quite misleading because it actually served to normalize Bolsonaro and make him seem like he was just another Trump-like figure. And when you actually go into Bolsonaro's history, he, is, he makes Trump look like a Boy Scout, pretty much. And I I can't believe some of the things that Bolsonaro has actually said, and I, I won't repeat them, first of all, because they're they're very, they're very bad, but also because I, I don't know if I could do justice through a mere paraphrasing. So I'm just, you know, I'm curious, like, how how would you sort of describe Bolsonaro for those casual observers who have only followed him from afar and don't have a good sense of who he is and, and maybe um, bring some of your own personal experience and what basically he and his cronies uh, were trying to do to you because it's not just his allies who were attacking you. Bolsonaro himself has gone out of his way to attack you personally.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting this framing uh Bolsonaro as the Trump of the tropics, because it is so misleading. And I was arguing that from the inception of this narrative, which I understood from the perspective that the Western press doesn't pay a lot of attention to Latin America, nor do uh, their audience. And so they were trying to convey who he was with a reference point to something they did know. So I understood the impetus behind it. And it is wildly misleading for uh, reasons I'll explain in just a second. But it did have also this uh, unintentional consequence of really boosting Bolsonaro. He wanted that label applied to him, that he was the Trump of Brazil, for for no other reason than that Brazilians have been told for decades that they're a third world country, they're a developing country, they're a poor country, things don't go right in Brazil. And so for them to be told that they have the opportunity to elevate to the presidency somebody who is essentially nothing more than the Brazilian version of the person who is the, of the rich and most powerful country in history seemed appealing to a lot of people. You know, they were they were being told by the Brazilian media that Bolsonaro is this figure that's completely inept and extremist and Uh, All of which is true, but then they're hearing from the Western press, well, no, actually he's just like Trump. And to them, it kind of normalized Bolsonaro. They said, well, how far outside the mainstream can he be if he's just like the person that was elected by the most powerful and most important and influential democracy on the planet? So it had that unintended effect, I think, of not just normalizing but strengthening him. And leaving aside the differences that are really profound and important— not just between Bolsonaro and Trump, but Bolsonaro and I think most of these kind of, for lack of a better term, new right leaders that we're seeing emerging throughout Western democracies, whether it's Marine Le Pen or Nigel Farage or just some of these kind of uh, hybrid right-wing groups like in Italy and in Greece and in Spain that are even finding some common ground with the left. Bolsonaro is really a throwback to the Cold War type of far-right uh authoritarian that the U.S. was so fond of supporting. But I think we have to leave aside the differences between the two people, Trump and Bolsonaro, for a minute, to understand more importantly, the reason why I objected so much was because Brazil and the United States are such profoundly different countries that even if those two were the same, which they're not, but even if they were, the fact that they're in these two extraordinarily different countries with different institutional histories and cultural and political uh, ethoses and 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 just the the kind of threats that uh can be posed in terms of authoritarianism in each they're all it's already wildly inaccurate and, and misleading to start trying to equate them. And what I mean by that is, you know, the United States, for whatever else you want to say about it, for whatever criticisms one might have it, is a very old and stable democracy. It's 235 years, depending on how you count. It's endured a civil war all kinds of internal strife, the Cold War, multiple wars. And for better or worse, the democratic institutions have more or less stayed stable. And that places very hard, hard limits, concrete hard limits on what a particular political official, like even the elected president, can do in terms of making incursions into core democratic values, whereas Brazil is exactly the opposite. It's a very new Democracy. It redemocratized only in 1985, elected its first president through direct elections only in 1989, so basically 30 to 35 years. And on top of that, it's been battered by economic crises and extreme poverty and corruption. So the institutions on which you would rely to place limits and checks on an authoritarian leader who rose to power are much more fragile and much weaker even beyond the question of whether they have the actual will to place those limits and defend democratic values. And that was why just independent of the differences, you know, Bolsonaro and and Trump seem so radically different to me in terms of the dangers that they oppose. But I think the history of the recent history of Brazil is crucial to understanding anything about what's happening with Bolsonaro in 1963, 62, 63, Brazil really started having this burgeoning democracy, and they were steadfastly devoted to the idea that they were going to remain neutral in the Cold War between Moscow and Washington, never gravitate toward the influence of one or the other because they knew that any country that did that ended up ripping it. So they really were trying to maintain this steadfast neutrality, and they elected – a center left government, not anything close to a communist government or a socialist government, just kind of a center left reformist government. And the president started doing very mild reforms like instituting rent control and, and you know, nas- re-nationalizing some industries that had been privatized and pulled off to international interests to make Brazil's resources work for the Brazilian people. But that was the height of the Cold War, right? The Bay of Pigs, the Russia, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Eisenhower era that in the U.S. security state. And so even those mild reforms were intolerable to Washington that still very much believed in the Monroe Doctrine, the idea that Central America and Latin America, South America are in their backyard and is, are theirs to control. And they warned the Brazilian government multiple times, you're going too far. And they you know, weren't willing to change policies to placate first the Kennedy and then the Johnson administration. And so in 1964, the CIA, working with right-wing generals, engineered a military coup. They drove the elected president out of the country to Uruguay within about 24 hours. And that ushered in a 21-year military dictatorship that was incredibly brutal. You know all the things that dictatorships do: they killed dissidents, they imprisoned journalists, they exiled artists, they you know ushered in repressive decrees that essentially eliminate eliminated all civil liberties. And it wasn't only it wasn't until 1985 very popular support, but Jair Bolsonaro was formed in that military dictatorship. He was a young army captain. And even once Brazil redemocratized, began electing its leaders, he had spent 30 years as a congressman from Rio de Janeiro, you know, elected like president, and he, he rose to prominence because he was so kind of deranged and so far outside the mainstream that the media couldn't take their eyes off him. He's also charismatic, but you know he would openly advocate the idea that military dictatorship was a superior form of government to democracy. And would say things like, if I were, ever, if I'm ever elected president, the first thing I would do is close the Congress. And then the next day I would close the Supreme Court. He said the only thing that the military dictatorship did wrong that he criticizes them for is they tortured a lot of people, but didn't kill enough dissidents. So he's an open, you know, authoritarian, much closer to, if you want to find a contemporary model, much closer to say, you know, General Sisi in Egypt or President who – in. Than he is to Donald Trump or any Western new right leaders.
0: But the interesting thing, Glenn, is that that as you said, it's 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 uh, so much of that has to do with the uh, the institutional. Well, I mean, the the call it the maturity of the democracy, but the institutional maturity of it. Right. I mean, in in many ways, you know, Trump said 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 horrible things throughout. Um, so I mean, maybe maybe one thing we might ask you to do just to sort of orient our our listeners uh is to just sort of give a little quick bit about about you know the 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 structure of the book and actually your big scoop in all of this i mean i really do want to talk about brazilian politics because i i think the book was actually super useful for me and i i'd love to talk about the cold war element of it but but it's it's um and maybe we can talk about brazilian politics through this what's what's uh what 's fascinating about the book is is you 're handed basically another scoop uh, you, you even identify it and early on as as almost the equivalent of the uh, you know career wise for you professionally and 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 as far as like a journalistic satisfaction the equivalent of the snowden scoop and it has to do with basically the collusion of one of the uh, the main you know at the time considered anti corruption judges in Brazil with uh, this basically uh, right-wing strand of Brazilian politics. So maybe as you talk a little bit about that uh, uh, for for our listeners to orient them, maybe you can also talk a little bit about Brazilian politics, because that's one of the things that, that both, you know, in the book, I think is, is is really interesting, but I also have some more questions about it, uh, about, you know, how, how one to think about this, uh, especially with everything you talked about, both the history, but this question of of populism and democracy and and what's actually happening in the world today. So I don't know, maybe you can say a few words there.
2: Sure. So, you know, I I definitely wrote the book for an international audience, for an American audience, Western European audience, not, and and I didn't even conceive of it as a book about Brazil per se. I, I conceived of it as an attempt to put Brazil under the microscope with the intention of drawing lessons about patterns that are happening throughout the democratic world because it is so interesting and to many people confounding that Brazil was a country that elected a center-left or even left-wing party, the Workers' Party, which was a party created by a former very charismatic labor leader, Lula da Silva, who became president of the country from 2002 until 2010. And... After he was term limited out of office, his successor, hand picked successor, Dilma Rousseff from the same party, was elected and then re elected. So, for four consecutive national elections, they voted for and were governed by a center left party. And then suddenly, there's this massive shift to Bolsonaro. And the question that a lot of people have is why. And I think analyzing the reasons why that happened tells you a lot, not just about. Brazil, but about Brexit and Trump and Marine Le Pen and these trends that we see throughout the democratic world, not just in in Brazil. So the really critical event is that, you know, as I said, it was Lula, who really is like one of the giants of the last part of the 20th century, early part of the 21st century. Um, when he was elected in 2002, there was a lot of mistrust about him and the international community. They thought he was going to be another Castro or another Chavez. But he really governed as this kind of moderate leftist. And, you know, Brazil grew very rapidly economically for the eight years that he governed. That was they passed the U.K. and many other countries became the sixth largest economy in the world. The rich did really well, but millions of people were lifting out of poverty. That was when Brazil got the World Cup and the Olympics, this kind of symbolic you know, uh, event that showed that Brazil had finally arrived as the country that people had always expected it to be. And when he left office, he had an 87 percent approval rating, 87 percent unheard of in a democracy that size of that size and complexity. And so in 2017, you know, everybody knew he was planning to run again for president in 2018. The term limits are you can't serve more than two consecutive terms, but then you can serve a third term as long as you have an interval. And all opinion polls showed that he was almost certain to win. You know, he had a 15, 20-point lead over all other candidates, including Bolsonaro. And while that was happening, there was this huge anti-corruption probe that was led by this judge, Sergio Moro, and this he's a young judge and this team of young prosecutors. And they were sending billionaires to prison and political leaders from mostly from left-wing parties, but some centrist parties. Prison. And a lot of people started thinking that this corruption probe, which was had taken over Brazil, Sergio Mora became the most popular person in Brazil by far. Um, you know, he resided above political figures. You would go to any city in Brazil and see huge murals of him on the side of buildings. They would depict him as Superman. He was the only Brazilian to make the Time 100 list in 2016. So he became this huge figure. And in 2017, as Lula was getting ready to run for what was almost certain to be a a winning presidential run, they brought extremely dubious corruption charges against him that even a lot of supporters of Sergio Moro in this probe were very skeptical of. But Moro, Judge Moro, found Lula guilty in a very short period of time and sentenced him to a decade in prison. And an appellate court that was notoriously subservient to Moro, most institutions were, they were afraid of him. He had an army of popular support behind him, affirmed that conviction. And when they did, it rendered Lula ineligible to run under the law. And so. Moro removed Bolsonaro's primary obstacle to the presidency, which was Lula, by finding him guilty on these very sketchy charges. And then Bolsonaro in 2018 cruised to victory. He easily defeated the other Workers' Party candidate who Bol- who, who Lula from prison had had handpicked. And the first thing that Bolsonaro did after winning the presidency before he was inaugurated was he turned around, and he offered Judge Moro a very important position in his government as minister of justice. And at the time, Moro, again, was the most popular, the most powerful figure in Brazil. He negotiated that all powers of investigation, surveillance, law enforcement be consolidated under his command. And Brazilian press started calling him a super minister. And he went and joined the government, kind of giving credence to the long-held suspicion on the left that he was really a right-wing figure all along, bent on destroying the workers' party. And so, about four months after Bolsonaro's inauguration, it was on Mother's Day in 2019. He was inaugurated January 1st, 2019. He was at the peak of his power. He had just won the decisive victory. His far right party that barely existed before 2018 was ushered into power. They were the second largest party behind the Workers' Party in Congress. He had Sergio Moro with him. His popularity was sky high. People were petrified of what he was going to do. And I got contacted by the source who said, that he had hacked into the Telegram accounts, which is like an encrypted app that Brazilian officials all were using, and downloaded years and years' worth of chats and documents and photos and audios and videos of the most important people in Brazil, including Judge Moro and all of these prosecutors. And he told me that it revealed grave corruption on their part that would shatter Brazil at its foundations. And... You know, I worked with him for a good while to create a climate of trust, began receiving this archive, quickly realized it was going to be bigger than the Snowden Archive in terms of its size. At the time, the Snowden leak was the biggest leak in modern journalistic history. This was larger. And after about three weeks, we had found so much shocking evidence, like really bombastic evidence of grave corruption that the way Sergio Mora was conducting these trials of Google, but others as well – was entirely corrupt. He was plotting with the prosecutors the whole time that he was pretending to sit in judgment of them. He broke the law in numerous cases in order to find them guilty, in order to obtain evidence. And when we began doing this reporting, it really destabilized the Bolsonaro government because Sergio Mora was the anchor of its legitimacy. And about three months after we began, the Supreme Court ordered Lula freed from prison, Um, It didn't exonerate him yet, but it ordered him freed from prison, which was a political earthquake here in in Brazil. Um, And then just recently, within the last month, the Supreme Court ruled that Sergio Moro never should have had the case to begin with, that they cheated to make sure it stayed with him, knowing that he would find Lula guilty. And then they actually concluded that he himself, based on a reporting, was corrupt and acting with extreme bias and political motives the entire time. And so they exonerated Lula. They nullified his conviction, restored his political rights. And he's now capable of running against Bolsonaro in 2022, which everyone expects him to do. So Brazil will have that choice, Bolsonaro versus Lula. That everyone thought we would have in 2018, but were denied as a result of this rampant corruption.
0: But Glenn, you mentioned in the book. Uh, I mean, and this is, I think, key to sort of get us talking about this sort of stuff. But you mentioned in the book, in fact, that that uh, you know uh, that Bolsonaro. You know, it's it. Some like to think that that had Lula been able to run, he would have been able to forestall Bolsonaro's rise. But in fact, you you point to the fact that he his rise was accompanied with all sorts of wins by by these right wing guys, you know, across across the country. That there was something else afoot here, like a kind of societal frustration that was driving a lot of this. Can, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's a really important point, and I'm glad you mentioned it. It is true that all polls showed. Lula was, you know, likely to beat Bolsonaro. But remember in 2016, all polls also showed that Hillary Clinton was overwhelmingly likely to defeat Trump and she didn't. And so I always say that I'm not at all confident that even had Lula run, he would have beaten Bolsonaro because I think it was just Bolsonaro's moment. And, you know, it's it's really interesting, you know, not only did Bolsonaro spend all those years praising a dictatorship, he also combines this religious fervor with the you know, anti-LGBT animus as one of his primary political programs, this kind of authoritarian, let's just go kill all the criminals. You know, ideas that never really were popular in Brazil. It's not a right-wing country. And I started noticing, you know, in 2017 and 2018, even friends of ours, you know, black people, working class people, people in the favelas, LGBTs themselves, started slowly coming out of the closet and saying, I think I'm considering voting for Bolsonaro. And that was when I really started thinking that he was going to win. And I think that he won not because of his right-wing extremism and his, some of his kind of demented bigotry and, you know, ideas that are that are offensive to almost anybody decent, but despite them. By that point, you know, Brazil had gone through this huge corruption scandal that was unfolding. In 2016, Dilma Rousseff, the Workers' Party president, was impeached. That was a huge political crisis. The effects of the 2008 financial crisis that started on Wall Street started reverberating in developing countries, you know, into her presidency. And by the time they impeached her, there was a massive economic and unemployment crisis, millions and millions of people unemployed. So many of the the, so much of the progress that had been made under Lula, the emergence of this this middle class kind of. Disappeared. Those people fell back into poverty with that a, an enormous epidemic of violent crime so that like the chances of a police officer in Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo being murdered on the job is higher than the probability that a U.S. soldier would, would have died in Baghdad or in the Sunni Triangle at the height of the Iraq war. It's, it's like war zone level violence. And so when you when you do that to people's lives, right, when you destroy their economic security, erase and dash their hopes, make them frightened that when they send their kids to school in the morning, they're not going to come back because of indiscriminate gun violence, and essentially ruin the entire country and make people perceive that the ruling elite is benefiting and has nothing but contempt, not just indifference, but contempt for everybody else. You set the stage for a demagogue to come and position himself as The enemy of the establishment, you know, I and the more that Bolsonaro got attacked by the establishment media that people had come to hate by bankers and by, you know, establishment figures, the more popular he became because so much of the country was driven by rage and anger that they didn't think Bolsonaro was going to save them, but they were just acting out of desperation. They thought, well, it can't be worse than the status quo. And if he's promising to burn down this system that we hate and that has been so bad for our lives, that seems like it's worth gambling on. And that to me is the same thing that explains how you have millions of voters who voted for Obama by promising to usher in change and, you know, radically revising how Washington works, who then voted for Trump in 2016, who also ran as an outsider. Same thing with Brexit, millions of angry people who didn't necessarily believe Brexit would improve their lives, but who did it anyway to kind of spite the ruling class. I think that's one of the things that is the most important thing to realize about what happened in Brazil and that brought us Bolsonaro is if you have an ideology like neoliberalism or globalism that is running rush shot over a huge portion of the population, the anger and rage that they're ultimately going to embrace validly at some point will be directed or Weaponized by a talented demagogue, regardless of ideology. They don't, you know, people who voted for it doesn't make sense for professional political people like us that someone could vote for Obama and then Trump, right? They, well, how do you vote for someone on the left and then the right? But I don't think most people think about politics in those terms. They think about who's going to improve our lives, who's going to change the things that we're angry about. And, you know, politicians on the left and right can position themselves as populist agents of change. And I think the right is just better at it, at least as of now. And that's why you're seeing so much right-wing success, not because of sudden love of nationalism or xenophobia or, you know, the hardened kind of right-wing populist rhetoric, but just desperation and anger.
1: Glenn, I mean, to what extent do you think that's changed? Obviously, um, Bolsonaro's support has declined Um, since he was elected, and the COVID pandemic has been part of that. I mean, one of the worst cases in the world in terms of just utter mismanagement. That said, he still seems to have um, retained core support, and it's not as if his his favorability has cratered completely. So there does seem to be some staying power, which just makes me wonder that if people are—they just want someone— to shake up the status quo and improve their lives in some way, no matter how bad they are otherwise. I mean, it seems that Bolsonaro hasn't done a particularly good job of improving anyone's life or or most people's lives, yet it's not a foregone conclusion that he's done for in the next elections. I mean, is that fair? Is that a fair account?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's remember that, you know, the 2020 election in the U.S., had conditions that were about as bad for an incumbent president as you could possibly hope for. Right. Like an out of control pandemic, a widespread perception that the federal government mismanaged it, a huge unemployment crisis, tens of million people out of work, one scandal after the next suffocating Trump's presidency. And yet he almost won. He almost won. I mean, you know, by the vote, popular vote total, which doesn't matter. It wasn't closed by the electoral uh, college vote total of 70,000 or 80,000 votes in one direction in a cute couple of key swing states, and Trump is currently in his second term. And so, you know, I think the same is true with Bolsonaro. He has a core base, like a hardened far-right, hard-right ideological base Or even people who just as a cult of personality still believe in him that will ensure he gets 25 to 30 percent of the vote. No matter what, he'll never fall below that ceiling and absent some cataclysmic event, which pretty much guarantees in Brazil's electoral presidential system, which is, you know, that you have a first round of voting. The top two candidates, if one fails to get 50 percent, go to the runoff and then suddenly he's running against a very polarizing figure like Lula. And he could win, again, because there's a lot of anti-worker party sentiment, because of the perception that Lula is corrupt. So you're absolutely right. Right now, though, what's happening is Bolsonaro was very clever in 2018. What he did was he eroded the hardened resistance to him on the part of the bourgeois class and on the part of the oligarchical class, which is incredibly powerful in Brazil and that you probably can't win an election if they're totally against you, by picking as his economics guru... Uh, This guy named Paulo Geddes, who's an economist from the University of Chicago, very kind of stereotypical, pro-austerity, pro-privatization. His model, his hero is Pinochet in Chile. And he said, Bolsonaro did during the campaign, look, I don't know anything about economic policy. It's never been an interest in mine. The person who's going to run the economy is Paulo Geddes. And I can't tell you how many educated, smart, you know, elites I heard saying and who said both before the election and after oh, I didn't vote for Bolsonaro I voted for Paulo Geddes. and then when he got Sergio Moro and he brought a huge other component in with him but what's happening now is Brazil is so isolated you know it's almost impossible to overstate how out of control this this coronavirus is and it's the variant form of it which obviously spreads much more quickly and I'm convinced increasingly is also more lethal and more dangerous. You see people anecdotally just dying at much higher rates. 50% of the ICU wards are filled with people under 40. He is clearly to blame for that. And what's happening is, you know, other countries are now isolating themselves from Brazil, closing their borders to anything that has to do with Brazil. And just a perception is being created that Brazil is kind of this cesspool of disease and mismanagement and there, there's a huge concern on the part of the elite class, on the part of agribusiness, on the part of banks, that international capital is fleeing, and that Brazil will not be able to recover its image in the world with a second Bolsonaro term. The problem is that you know they look at what happened in January 6th at the capital, and they speak of it with contempt, the Bolsonaro movement does, because they think that it was just so lame. And Bolsonaro's primary project is to free up the commercial trade of firearms, basically clearly arming the substantial minority of people that are likely to be willing to go into the streets and engage in violence in his defense. He's definitely going to claim if he loses that it was the byproduct of fraud. He did it in the first election before the election was held. He said the only way he could lose is if the Workers' Party cheats. And the bigger concern I think that people have is not so much that he legitimately wins a second term, although that's definitely possible, but that if he doesn't, it's very easy to see how there could be serious civil unrest or even something resembling civil armed conflict. Can you talk a little bit
0: about, about I mean, that's the one thing that, that's, you know, as someone who doesn't know Brazil very well, uh, that I was struggling a little bit reading your book, though, about how, how some of these divisions in society work. And again, I, I, I think there's, there's you know, we can use this again as to, to talk about sort of bigger pictures about this entire phenomenon globally. But it's striking to me, you know, again, what, what little I know about sort of uh, the rise of Lula and his party. I mean, you, you talk about the oligarchic class, which, again, from my very dilettantish knowledge of of the broader region, is is a phenomenon across a lot of Latin American countries. This oligarchic pro, uh, property owning class, which has a massive concentration of wealth that you know shames any sort of Gini coefficient talk that we have here in the United States about this sort of stuff. But but they gave uh, Lula a shot. Am, am I right about that? Like basically they they were they were fine, as you know, i guess uh, p t was was sort of uh, as you said, a center left party and was was trying to co-opt a lot of this stuff. What exactly happened that this dissolution came from? I mean, to a certain extent, uh, I understand uh, Judge Morrow and this sort of, you know, cabal of people trying to basically discredit a lot of this uh, uh, center left stuff. But it seems to me, you know, when you talk about the elites, I'm not exactly clear who that is. Where's the frustration coming from? And how is it that that, you know, it's it's despite all of this. And again, I take your point that Bolsonaro's playing with the same sort of stuff that Trump was uh, ahead of January 6th. And and actually, there's a, a much more. uh, uh I don't know pointed threat given given the situation, both the sort of call it institutional uh, uh shallowness compared to the United States but also just you know the the historical baggage of it. Just talk to me a little bit more about how that's working out in Brazil right now because I don't feel like I get that
2: yeah it's an you know it's it, you know it's interesting that question that you asked me I asked Lua when I interviewed him in uh twenty nineteen when he was still in prison. what happened was. Lula ran—before Lula was elected in 2002 to the presidency, he ran three other times prior to that and lost all three times. He almost won. Twice he made the runoff. One time he didn't. And when he was getting ready to run again in 2002, he said, I'm just not losing again. I'll do whatever I have to do to win. So one of the things he did was he selected as his vice presidential running mate this multi multimillionaire millionaire who had been extremely successful in the textile business, who had lots of ties to bankers and to high finance. And that was obviously a sign. Like, obviously, I'm not Fidel Castro, right? I'm not Che Guevara. I'm not Hugo Chavez. I'm willing to play ball. And then he wrote this very famous uh, what's called Letter to the Brazilian People, where the whole point of which was to assure them that he was going to govern as a moderate and a non-ideologue. And, you know, in Brazil, you know, we complain a lot in the US that we only have two effective parties and sometimes, you know, you don't fit within either of them, but you're forced to attach yourself to one. Brazil has the opposite problem. It has, I think now, you know, varies, but I think now it's like 28, 30 parties. So when you're elected president, you have to put together a ruling coalition in Congress to get anything done and you end up partnering with a lot of. You know, if you're a center-left party centrist and even center-right or just parties that are just transactional, you know, give us these ministries because that way we can take bribes as we run the center of the politics and we'll give you all our votes in Congress because we don't actually care about policy. So Lula, that's how we governed. And even though, as I said, millions of people got taken out of poverty with these really innovative anti-poverty programs that even like the World Bank and The Economist to this day praise and hold up as a model— the rich did very well, very, very well under Lula. It's not like there was redistribution going on. I mean, they, they, the, the economic growth redounded to their benefit to a great degree. And so when I went and interviewed him in 2019, he kept saying, you know, Glenn, I'm in jail only because they were petrified that I was going to return to the presidency and they knew I was going to win. And I said, "Who was they? And he said, you know, the elite, the rich. And I said, let me ask you, I don't understand that argument. I don't understand that you can say that credibly, because if you look at all data, the rich did better under your presidency than almost any other. And when you left, they were very happy with you. That's why you had an 87% approval rating. Why would they be so devoted to your return as though you're some kind of a threat to them when actually they flourished under your presidency? And he gave me this answer that I find fascinating and I think is so true and important, which is he said, look, it's not just economics. They were—you're right—they were fine with me from a perspective of how they were doing economically. The resentment is cultural. The emergence of this middle class in Brazil, a country which was the last country to eliminate slavery, so you not only have grave economic inequality but also racial uh, segregation and animus, meant that for the first time, rich people who would go to the airport would see poor black people from the favelas in the airport flying for the first time. You know, instead of taking a bus for three days to go to the northern part of Brazil they could now fly, you know, a few hundred dollars. It's a huge change culturally. And you would it would you would commonly hear things like, our airports now look like bus stations. Or you would go to a shopping mall that had been a middle class or upper middle class shopping mall and suddenly you would see black people there and people from the favelas who now had consumer power were going to college because of scholarship programs. And these kinds of cultural changes made them feel like the Brazil that they knew and where they had a comfortable place in – had been slipping away, and I, you know, I wasn't immediately convinced of that. But I think Bolsonaro's victory, in a lot of ways, is a testament to the veracity of Lula's view because so much of Bolsonaro's appeal, just like Trump's "Make America Great Again," let's go back to the you know 1950s or several decades ago when things were better. Very much was you know a kind of regressive, restorative promise of let's go back to Brazil before these insane changes ruined all of our lives. And I think that did end up being a big part of the reason why they preferred Bolsonaro to Lula. I think that's now changing. It's so interesting when you read about the the Supreme Court exonerating Lula and restoring his political rights. When that happened, the market in Brazil skyrocketed. And there was even talk that international capital is celebrating the fact that they now have somebody to defeat Bolsonaro. It's so ironic, right, that these economic sectors, international capital, are now praying for Lula's return when for decades they were petrified of him. But it's precisely because of the governing decisions that he made that you referenced.
1: So, I mean, this is really interesting because when I hear you talking about Brazil and, and reading your writing on Brazil, it makes me, it almost tempts me to read into it to try to think to myself, oh, well, does this help explain how Glenn views US politics and feel free to push back Glenn if if you think I'm reading too much into certain things, but I mean one theme that I see is um you saw how basically what might be called a deep state in Brazil undid um undid the results or the potential results of a democratic election around the ballot box, kind of like a workaround that Lula, who was a man of the center left or left. And there was a way to kind of get around that potential result um, through the judicial class, through the courts um, and Sergio Moro in particular. I I wonder if that colors how you viewed the efforts to undo the election of Trump through the, uh, the national security state, the intelligence services, how, um, you know, I don't, again, like that. that's maybe one way of looking at it, but also I think more broadly, you know, wokeness is an issue that um, Demir and I have been talking about and writing about on Wisdom of Crowds for a while. And I got the sense that in your book, wokeness, uh, quote unquote wokeness, obviously doesn't really um, apply to Brazil in quite the same way, but you do t- talk quite a bit about systemic racism and attacks against marginalized groups and how this superstructure is affecting people. And I, and I almost got the sense that sometimes you're, you're almost suggesting that look, the U S has its problems. Yes, there is structural racism in the U S but look at what's happening in Brazil. That's like five, you know, five or 10 times worse let's not go into woke excess or woke radicalism in the US because that is that that runs the risk of basically blowing something up which is bad but it's not you see the excess in the US case or you see how um treating trump as if he's existential runs the risk of going too far and undermining democratic institutions, again, in comparison to a place like Brazil, because the U- the U.S. is fundamentally different and we're fundamentally more stable and and better on some of these issues for all of our faults. I mean, to what extent would you say um, that's an accurate representation of how you view some of these issues?
2: Yeah, well, you know, obviously I have had extreme skepticism for whatever you want to call it. You know, the national security, Bob, the military industrial complex, the deep state, the security state in the United States for many, many years, long before Trump and long before, you know, I witnessed what happened in Brazil with Wu with and Bolsonaro. Obviously, the Snowden reporting was very much about abuses by the national security and partner agencies And Snowden came to me because of the years prior to that I had been writing about what I thought were these abuses primarily undertaken in the name of the war on terror but also obviously very much residual uh, abuses from the Cold War when you really did have these institutions lurking in the dark – who are controlling large parts of Washington and the government putting limits on what they can and can't do, who are beyond the reach of democratic accountability because they stayed in power regardless of the outcome of elections. J. Edgar Hoover for decades, you know, Alan Dulles running the CIA. And even when John Kennedy is elected after Eisenhower, he stays on. These were kind of these permanent power factions in Washington. And and so I've, I've always been skeptical of them, but definitely, you know, I think it's an insightful point that you're making. It isn't so much... The reporting that I did in 2019, what actually happened was in 2016, I alluded to earlier, the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, because what happened there was, you know, the Workers' Party won in 2002, 2006, 2010 pretty easily, Um, and then in 2014— because of all these crises in Brazil, they really thought the center right and right thought that this was finally their opportunity to, to win, to beat the Workers' Party at the ballot box. Something that they couldn't were trying to do for 15, 16 years and couldn't do. And they got this kind of charismatic heir to a political dynasty who's a senator, who's good looking, well spoken, politically talented, and they thought this is really our chance to win. And his name was Acio, Acio Nunes, uh Acio Neves and He almost won. He almost won. But he didn't. Dilma won. The Workers' Party won again in 2014. It was like 51 to 48, a super close election. And the right never accepted that defeat. They never accepted the legitimacy of that defeat. And they turned around 18 months later and they impeached her on preposterously trivial grounds. Like the most, you know, corrupt gangsters in Latin America were leading the impeachment process against her, feigning indignation over these very trivial and manufactured corruption allegations. And that was really when I first started writing about Brazilian politics. That was when I created the Intercept Brazil, taking the Intercept and creating a newsroom in Brazil of of young Brazilian journalists because the media and so many power sectors were so united behind Dilma that I saw what happened. You know, there was, there were leaks showing that it was the military, and bankers and the center right all working together to do this impeachment with the media. It was really a strike against the legitimacy of democracy to me. And that was in 2016. And then when I saw Trump win and many of the same factions kind of uniting to create scandals like Russiagate, which, you know, I've obviously, obviously, obviously been a skeptic of. It really seemed to me very similar. You know, this idea that This is a pretender to the presidency, someone who had no right to win. Hillary Clinton called him an illegitimate president. And so a big part of how I viewed the Trump presidency from the outset was that these very powerful institutions that were opposed to him, largely for stylistic and comportmental reasons as opposed to policy reasons, were dead set on undermining and subverting his presidency, I think they tried hard to prevent him from winning in the first place through interference. And I, I, I view that as, as quite dangerous. However dangerous Trump might have been, I view that as being at least as dangerous. Trump was the legitimately elected president in 2016. He won that election fair and square. Um, no one thinks there was voter fraud or whatever. Um, and I think there was just a refusal to accept. The fact that he had won and would actually now be governing the United States. And I saw right away this kind of um, formation of this idea, this attempt to depict Trump as this you know, unprecedented threat to American democracy, which I never saw him as, in part because American institutions are way too strong. As we were discussing earlier, you saw the media – you know, get activated after years of dormancy under Bush and Obama, street protests, you know, Congress, the courts intervening and invalidating his Muslim ban right away early on. It was clear that he was going to encounter huge amounts of obstacles and barriers and resistance. So I, and also just Trump is just too lazy. He's too slothful. He's too inept to be an effective, devoted Destroyer of democracy that was never really his project. You know, he was just about his personal grievances and vendettas. And I never really took seriously the threat that Trump posed, in part because I was looking at it through the prism of real threats to democracy, like what happened in Brazil from 1964 to 1985. Um, And I also, you know, I think that having gone through the Snowden reporting, where I was, you know, really overtly threatened in lots of different ways for a year with prison. If I had left Brazil, I couldn't leave Brazil for 14 months after I got back from Hong Kong and met Snowden. You guys probably remember, my husband was notoriously detained in Heathrow Airport under a terrorism law. It was the British and the Americans trying to kind of intimidate us. After everything I went through there, and then, you know, especially what I went through here in Brazil, doing the reporting that we did, where there were, You know, serious death threats all the time, constant threats from Bolsonaro himself to imprison me, culminating with an attempt actually to criminally charge me along with my sources with like 122 felony counts that if I had been convicted on, I would have gone to prison for, you know, 380 years or whatever it was. This this kind of narrative that the media had adopted for itself, this self-glorifying narrative that we are the resistance, we're in this in grave danger because press freedoms, are, it all just seemed very melodramatic and artificial to me and I thought quite misleading. And I felt as though what was really going on was that a kind of binary politics got imposed on the United States where everything was defined by your relationship to Trump. You were either pro-Trump or you were anti-Trump, and that's all that mattered. And if you were anti-Trump, it meant that you were one of the good guys, even if you were the ones who did the Iraq War and worldwide torture regime and rendition and all the stuff the CIA had done and the FBI had done as part of that war on terror, um, even if you were part of the corporate elite that had run roughshod over the lives of tens of millions of people, as long as you were against Trump, you were embraced, you were empowered, and I think American liberalism, by joining itself at the hip with those kinds of elements, kind of absorbed a lot of their values of militarism, of jingoism. You, you know, I mean, the whole script of. People being clandestine agents of the Kremlin is a far right script that came out of the McCarthy years, you know, of J. Edgar Hoover and, and uh, Joseph McCarthy. And it became everything. Everybody was a traitor who supported Trump. Um, there was this huge polarization. And I got to the point where I really did believe that the greater danger to the United States was not Trump, but the way the the, 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 the tactics that were being embraced and the the values that were being adopted, often kind of subconsciously or implicitly, in the name of fighting him. And sure, I do think that being in Brazil and seeing what real tyranny looks like, having gone through reporting where I felt like I've confronted actual dangers in connection with reporting, definitely shaped how I viewed some of
1: that. that that's, really, that's really interesting because it makes me think about how my experiences in Egypt in the lead-up to the 2013 coup against a democratically elected Islamist government uh, of Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, how that, similar to how you're talking about the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, that that very much shaped how I view Trump, that I saw what happened when here was an election result that was, um, you know, uh, the first free election, presidential election in Egypt's history. It produced a result that a lot of people didn't like um you know uh, that a lot of people thought was personally threatening here was an islamist in power um and and you see, but then you have to be consistent about respecting democratic outcomes and that's the true test and so when i saw what happened in trump similar to what you're describing i'm like hey he is personally threatening i think trump is really bad but um democratic outcomes are democratic outcomes that said i do want to push on on one thing and I worry that I underestimated Trump a little bit. Um, I think that you and I, Glenn, were very much on the same page on, on these issues. We were critical of the, uh, aspects of the Russia investigation, that it was going too far. I was skeptical about impeachment at least the first time, but even to some extent the, the second time. But that said, we uh, isn't there a risk that in trying to understand what led to someone like Trump, there is a risk of letting our guard down. And I think that I had to contend with this after January 6th. I did not see that coming. I was caught off guard. To me, that was a real threat to American democracy, not not to the same extent as a place like Brazil, let's say, but still, in terms of our own context and my own adult life, that came as a shock to a lot of us and I did not think that Trump would do what he did. I did not think that the Republican Party would be this indulgent and this disrespectful of a legitimate Democratic outcome this time in favor of Joe Biden. I mean, those criticisms, which I think are, are leveled to you, they were very much leveled against me. Self, so in the interest of like self-criticism, how would you sort of account for that? Like, do you think? We weren't tough enough that we should have been. At, we should have been tougher on the uh, about the the risk that Trump presented in light of January sixth and, and the Capitol riots.
2: So, first of all, b- before addressing that part of of what you said, let me just quickly uh, kind of seize the Egypt example because I think it's an important one hmm. to shed light on everything that you said. I think one of the early defining moments for me about how I ended up viewing the Trump era was it was in 2017 when Trump invited General Sissi to the White House, and it caused all kinds of moral indignation about how can it be the United States president could possibly embrace a despot, you know, a, a dictator? How that's not what United States presidents do. And I remember, you know feeling like I was in some kind of, like, Alice in Wonderland world, where, like, reality had been completely inverted. You know, I mean, the reason Egypt hadn't had a free election until Morsi won was because the United States for decades had supported Mubarak. You know, Hillary Clinton called Mubarak a very close friend of my family. And when Morsi won, and then there was a military coup, I remember very, you know, clearly that John Kerry was praising Sissy as kind of a restorer of democracy. Yeah, restoring so democracy often have exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, that and and that's what the United States has been doing for decades, obviously. Like in Brazil, you know, they didn't say, "Hey, we just overthrew a democratically elected leader and imposed a military dictatorship." They got Henry Luce and the Time magazine and the New York Times reporters to depict it as, "Oh, this was a corrupt and increasingly tyrannical government threatening Brazilian democracy." And we support this new government that is a temporary caretaker who is going to restore, you know, military to democracy because that's the role as the military. All the time, every coup that the United States does gets depicted as pro-democracy when, in fact, the United States has obviously been undermining democracy whenever it wants. And so to see this kind of propaganda Oh, how can Trump possibly embrace it? You know, the United States and the Saudis just alone, you know, should have made that an impossible narrative. But you could see kind of the the history of the United States being rewritten, where everybody who came before Trump were was, whatever their ideology, at least devoted to core democratic values, and that Trump was this radical aberration. From them, And I never viewed him that way. I always viewed him as just kind of a symptom rather than a cause of what was going wrong in the United States. So then you go to January 6th and, you know, my view of January 6th is I don't think it's that uncommon for very energized and angry protests to spill into violence and riots. We saw it, you know, many times over the summer where, you know, mostly peaceful protesters gather, some get angry, some get violent. Suddenly a protest turns into a riot, cops are being hurt, protesters are being hurt. I think what happened here is it happened at the Capitol, you know, kind of like the symbol of the stability of American democracy. And that's what became so jarring about it. You know, at the end of the day, though, I don't share the kind of um, notion that this was, a a a vindication of those who had said all along that Trump was genuinely a threat to democracy. There were, what, 700, 800 people there. Most of them were older. None brandished a weapon inside the Capitol. Five people died that day. Four of them were Trump supporters, two of whom died of a heart attack, one of whom died of methamphetamine or amphetamine overdose, one of whom was shot point blank by a Capitol police officer in the neck. And then the only person who wasn't there as part of the Trump protest was Officer Brian Sicknick, and we don't really know how he died. We can assume that it was connected to the Capitol, but the the narrative that was created at first they this savage mob bashed his head in with a fire extinguisher until he was dead. We know that's false. He might have died come from some kind of unintentional use of, of not the uh, an unintentional killing through bear spray. They used bear spray, and he reacted in a, in an unusual way and died from that. We don't know. But you know, the United States is the most militarized. And 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 powerful country in the world, there was no risk in my view that those seven hundred or eight hundred people, many of whom are boomers and older and unarmed, were going to overthrow the United States. I think it, it just ended up being poor preparation on the part of the Capitol. It's kind of shocking that in the nine eleven era they were that that building was so poorly fortified. Um, but you know, a couple of hundred more armed police officers and they would never would have gotten in or they would have been expelled immediately. And if you look at what has happened since, you know, there's been a lot of warnings. There was warnings on January 20th on Inauguration Day that they expected violent protests at state capitals. They militarized Washington, D.C. and nothing materialized. So, you know, Trump was incredibly reckless. And when you go around claiming baselessly that there was systemic fraud, In the vote count that you really won by a landslide just because he couldn't admit, you know, as his own ego for his own ego that he lost. That is really a reckless and dangerous thing to do. And it's not surprising that it encouraged people who believed in him to take some extreme steps. That's a really serious allegation. Democracy has been stolen from you. But I don't you know, I think at the end of the day, if you look at the effect overall, the net effect of the Trump presidency on American democracy, I actually think American democracy was strengthened because it engaged so many more people in politics who had not been paying attention. It revitalized the idea of street protest and activism. It made the media more cantankerous and adversarial, at least to some factions. It kind of revitalized this idea that we're supposed to be involved in how we're governed, that we don't just elect a president and then go to sleep and let them do whatever they want, And I don't think even January 6th will ultimately be viewed as having been a genuine threat to the stability of American democracy.
0: So there you have it. That's the end of part one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We've got another 30 minutes uh, for members only uh, where we just press Glenn on uh, on other issues. Uh, beyond uh, just the book, about his politics, uh, about his uh, views on foreign policy, and even uh, on uh, whether he might at some point consider joining a administration. Really interesting stuff. Uh, hope you guys will join us as members. If you're not members yet, go to uh, w uh, no not www uh, <laughs> wisdomofcrowds live slash subscribe uh, and uh, join up. I'll see you guys over there.